Welcome. Welcome. Tiffany, gosh, that's something we're we're really trying to move away from. It just causes so much pain to say one loss, one death. If you if you're injured in Iraq and you die there, you get a you know a different kind of pain. If you if you wind up surviving long enough to make it back to the states and you die, then your your family gets a different designate. And we I anyway, it just it it's it a causes loss. a loss. Exactly. We have evolved in this country to the point where we have the same headstone, the same benefits, the same flag. The VA doesn't use the term gold star. Whew, we've made it. We've almost made it. The oh, the last little vestige are those darn little lapel pins. But anyway, yeah. that's, that's another issue because we want to really get to the point where we're honoring every life, everybody. And whether you, you know, whether your service never included stepping foot in a combat zone and you had horrible, you know, you had things happen at Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. I, yes, we want to acknowledge the fact that you said, "I will defend this country. I will go where mission demands, and I will be present, and I will do whatever it takes." In 1987, a young woman working in the West Wing of the Reagan White House was introduced to a dashing Army colonel. She was a second lieutenant in the Air National Guard. He was a Vietnam combat veteran. They fell deeply in love. Within months they married. On November 12, 1992, Brigadier General Tom Carroll, 44, who was the assistant adjutant general of the Alaska Army Guard at the time, was making a routine flight to a facility in Juneau from Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage in an Army C-12F twin-engine Beechcraft along with seven others. The Guard were preparing for an instrument-aided landing when the plane crashed on southern Chilkat Peninsula. They died shortly after the crash. This week's guest is his surviving spouse, Bonnie Carroll, an American widow. We had five wonderfully happy years together, Bonnie said. Then he was gone. That August... I got together with some of the other families who lost loved ones that day. We chartered a helicopter and visited the crash site. It was on the side of a mountain, and the remains of the plane were still there. For us, being at the site provided finality, and was very much a healing experience. While that experience may have helped stanch some of the emotional bleeding, the ache of loss only grew deeper. Bonnie looked around for some group that might offer support. There was none. No group was there for all those who lose a loved one serving in the armed forces to reach out to, she said. All that winter, Bonnie Carroll thought about that void, thought about creating an organization to fill that void, talked to folks who could empathize with her pain, others who had lost a husband or a wife, brother or sister, son or daughter, officials in the Pentagon and the VA. In October 1994, she launched the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. In 2015, Bonnie Carroll was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom.
Thanks so much, Tiffany. Actually, my inspiration to serve in the military began with my mom. She was an aviator way back in World War II. And so she uh, was was one of those women that stepped forward to serve her country during a very difficult time. And uh, she was a talented aviator. She was recognized by the uh, both the, the female and the male pilots that she flew with. In fact, uh, one of the things that I have from her, she died when I was a teenager from cancer. So I don't have a whole lot of memories, but one I really treasure was a little necklace that she gave me that had uh, just a little wing nut on it, like the kind of wing nut you put on a screw, which it was something that the the uh, the guys gave her, the other male pilots, and they, they presented it to her and they said, wear this. It's for coming in on a wing and a prayer when you're in a tough spot. And that was so beautiful and so metaphoric of their recognizing that even as, you know, I say even as a woman, but back then there was a big difference. In, uh, in the military, that she would be in a tough spot at times and would need that wing in a prayer. So uh, I did join the Air National Guard and did it in the midst of a very busy career in Washington, D.C. in politics. Stepped away from that and told, told everybody, this is our duty as Americans, our duty as citizens in a free country to serve however we can, wherever we can. So went off now, Air National Guard basic training is actually active duty basic training. Mm-hmm. So went down to Lackland Air Force Base, went, went through that, that same experience, went off to the tech school and then came back home to the D.C. Air National Guard, the 113th Tech Fighter Wing, had an absolutely fantastic experience, applied to be commissioned. And in the Guard, the way it works is you have to actually kind of interview for a slot and then that slot is capped at the rank. So applied uh, to go into one of those spots. And in the interview, they said, all right, you know, if, if we select you and we put you through officer school and we do all of this, you have to commit that you're going to stay in the D.C. Guard. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. You know, this is this is my plan. Well, gosh, right after I got commissioned, I met through my job working in the wet, my civilian job, working in the West Wing of the White House, an Alaska Army Guard colonel from Alaska, from Alaska. And it was during a whale rescue. This is back in the late 80s. And there actually was a movie written about how we met called Big Miracle. Uh, Universal did a movie and starred Drew Barrymore, John Krasinski, Ted Danson. But it's about this whale rescue and it includes our story. Wow. at the time, working in the West Wing of the White House, I worked directly for the president, and he came by my office late one night. He goes, now, Bonnie, he goes, you're in the National Guard. I said, yes. I, he said, there's something going on. It's a whale rescue. It involves the National Guard. He goes, call someone you know, because, you know, we all know each other in the military, especially in the Guard. So call someone you know. Find out how we can help. And uh, and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the next chapter in my life. I met Colonel Tom Carroll. We married shortly thereafter. I headed off to Alaska, much to the, oh, gosh, unhappiness of my D.C. Guard co- colleagues. <laughs> arrived in Alaska and applied to actually work full time for the Alaska Air National Guard. Okay. So in the Guard. You have a lot of different statuses. You can serve as a traditional guardsman one weekend a month, two weeks a year. Of course, 
you know, the past 20 years, that's kind of gone out the window because all guardsmen are serving long, long deployments. Mm -hmm. But then you can also be serving in a federal technician status as a civil servant in uniform while also doing your weekend and your, your annual training. Or you can be what they call AGR, Active Guard and Reserve. And that's uh, more in a military status, but again, still serving the guards, still in uniform. So it's pretty hard to tell looking at a guardsman mm -hmm. what status they're in. But I served as the executive officer for the wing, the 176th Airlift Wing uh, up, up in Anchorage, Alaska. And it was, it was absolutely fantastic. The guard is a family. Mm -hmm. We serve with each other. We get to know each other as family. We support each other. And I uh, was there for two years and then went off into a civilian job working with the Alaska Department of Law, still serving now back as a traditional guardsman that one week in the month. And it was during that time that there was a guard a fatality. It was a crash of a C-12 aircraft. And one of those on board was my husband who was killed along with the seven other soldiers. Tom, at the time, was the assistant adjutant general of the Alaska Army Guard. He'd been promoted to general officer and was leading thousands of soldiers now. And uh, so his loss was absolutely just overwhelming, devastating for, for the entire Guard family and, of course, for me and our family. Um, but before we go into taps, I think you just dropped a whole lot of stuff. Uh, like, oh, by the way, I was in politics, but I said, forget that. I'm going to join the military. Oh, by the way, I worked in the West Wing, um, and did the National Guard. Oh, by the way, I did, uh, stop the press. Hold on. Let's backtrack. <laughs> uh -huh. So what, what was it that you were involved in? In politics, what was the working in the West Wing like? Um, of course, I know that there's, you know, limited things that you're able to say, share, and whatever disclose. But what, as a person, what was that like? That was an extraordinary experience to serve in that capacity, to, to really see at the highest levels how our government can function for the people. Uh, it, it was amazing to work every day on making a difference in the lives of Americans. And it gave me great confidence in our government to see how everyone involved at that level is working just diligently around the clock to make a difference. You know, in that administration, it was a long time ago, it was working for uh, President Ronald Reagan. And he was amazing. He was so connected and the, the team that he had around him, I got to work with Colin Powell as a national security advisor and, and others who were just brilliant and so focused on getting us through the Cold War and, and transitioning our military and building up our defenses and doing so many good things. So really, it really was a tremendous honor. And uh, back before that, working uh, on Capitol Hill, I was working for a consulting firm that did a lot of lobbying and uh, consulting on, on campaigns, but we were involved in a lot of defense issues mm -hmm. and lobbying on behalf of defense contractors who were trying to get new technologies into the inventory. And that was exciting to see. Yeah. Always throughout my career, seeing those throughout our country who are doing what they can to make us stronger, safer, and uh, really that, that model of what a free democracy can be about. 
You know, hearing you mention some of those names, you know, Colin Powell is someone that I would love to meet just because I remember, I remember I joined the military in February of 95. So he was, I think, I think I, I might have my time frame mixed up, but I think when I joined, he may have been the secretary of the army at the time. Or, or maybe had just finished that role or position, but um, yeah, uh, it, yeah, absolutely, um, yeah, he's somebody that I would like. I'd love to sit down and just say, so let's talk about the army. Let's talk about Secretary of State and just these different things. I mean, just to move through these these different positions. And from my limited knowledge, um, I, I mean, I don't know him. But he seems to be a very humble person doing very powerful things. Um, so I think that's that's great. Um, he is absolutely. And one of my favorite stories that I just heard him tell so I'm, uh, was about the time that he was in a, you know, in, in this, I think either it was a funeral or a church service or some, you know, some event. And uh, he was... Um, these aides came to get him right in the middle of the service and they, you know, they, they shuttle him out quickly. He has to take a phone call. You know, he comes back in and of course everyone's like, Oh my gosh, something very important. We must be, you know, some big international incident. What's going on? And he whispers to his wife that some foreign dignitary had just passed and he had to, you know, do a condolence and all that. And she goes, Oh yeah, I saw that on CNN this morning. <laughs> and he was like, okay. <laughs> he goes, well, now I know where I fall in the whole chain of events. It was hilarious, yeah. <laughs> so self-deprecating, and just was yeah. such a such a wonderful person to work with, and and really uh, an absolutely genuine human being. And and that's how he comes across. Um, but but you know, a lot of times somebody can come across one way and then be something different. But he really ha- does come across as that humble um, humble person. Uh, another question I was going to ask you with with what you were sharing. So you said your mom, your mother was a pilot. Would she have been part of the WASP? Yes. So she well, was a WASP. Well, the Women's Army Air Corps. Oh, so that would that would have been the WAC, right? So they were the ones that ferried the planes. Okay. Awesome. I was like, uh oh, we got a we got a WASP amongst us. <laughs> um, I wish I knew so much more about yeah. her service. It, so, but I, it, it really inspired such a big part of my life and has shaped, you know, who, who I am today. And if it wasn't for that, you know, that connection in the military, which has been, uh, you know, which has guided me, I w- wouldn't have met Tom, wouldn't be on this journey now. So yeah. very, very grateful. Yeah. So I, I'd love to talk about that now, um, this, where you are now. So you have you have three distinctly different ties to the military, being the daughter of somebody who served, serving yourself, and then being the spouse of somebody who served, and then to lose your spouse um, because of him doing his service in the military. Um, that's a lot of loss, and that's a lot. I mean, it's like, well, one that's a lot of ties in the military, but to lose your mother at a young age. And then to lose your husband at a young age, um, that that's a lot to deal with. And it, it seems to me that you've turned that loss and that struggle and that passion and that hurt into something good to help other people. 
Can you talk about that? Can you talk about TAPS and kind of how it came about? Oh, absolutely, Tiffany. Thank you. And yeah, my husband actually lost his father when he was a teenager. Uh, there were four boys in the family, and their dad was a World War II veteran. He was a major general, and he was the first adjutant general of the Alaska National Guard. So he took the uh, the Alaska Guard from being a territorial organization through statehood to become the uh, the state of Alaska National Guard. And in 1964, following the big earthquake that Alaska experienced, he was killed in a C-123 crash, just flying the governor around. They had just dropped the governor off and took off to do more reconnaissance. And the plane went into Valdez Bay and they, no one was recovered from that. So imagine for um, Tom's mother and his three brothers they went from being, you know, the family of the adjutant general and living in this big house and very involved in government and big future ahead of them and all of these, you know, all these things happening in their lives to just being now, you know, four boys living with a widowed mother who's grieving a, a horrible loss and, and moving back to another community in Anchorage and, and just trying to find their way. So when they graduated from high school, three out of the four boys went right into the army. That was the life that they knew. And uh, so that Tom was the only one that stayed in for his entire career, 10 years on active duty, and then going back home to Anchorage to go back into the guard and uh, serve. So his whole entire life revolved around that military service. So when I came into the family, you know, I got to know his mother and got to hear her story as being a military widow during that time and what that was like for her. So, you know, Tom was very protective of the benefits that she received from the military as a military widow, uh, putting the sticker on her car. So, you know, she would have access to go to the cemetery and all of these things. And, you know, we kind of thought since his family had been through that, through the loss of a family member in an aviation accident, that that could never touch our lives. He said, what the odds of that happening to, you know, the same family twice are just too great. So that was kind of a joke we had. And whew, it was uh, absolutely unbelievable that that was our story and that he was killed in that exact same way, even serving in a very similar position. After Tom was killed, I went looking for the kind of support that I, I knew had to exist for those grieving the death of a military loved one. In my civilian job with the Alaska Department of Law, I was actually involved with a group for fallen police officers, a group called COPS, Concerns of Police Survivors, and was on the board of our local group for those who were grieving a death to homicide called Victims for Justice. So, you know, in stumbling forward as, as best anyone can after just such a devastating loss, I went to those groups thinking grief is grief. That will help. I'll be with others and found that it really didn't resonate. They they weren't speaking my language. I didn't understand theirs. Tom wasn't a police officer. He didn't die in a homicide. We weren't, you know, we didn't have a perpetrator or waiting for a court date or, you know, weren't speaking that language. So over time was just really astonished that there wasn't a group for military families grieving a loss. 
started, you know, I joined Gold Star Wives, became a life member, but their focus was more on advocacy and you know, it was a membership organization. It really didn't have that component. So, you know, I talked to them about it. They said that it just wasn't something they did and wasn't a focus. So it wasn't until I got back together with those other seven families that we found the magic. We found all of a sudden we had everything in common and just being with them and hearing my feelings resonate, you know, coming back to me and their words was so powerful. And it was out of that. I said, all right, we've, we've, we've got to create. If there truly is not something for the military, by golly, let's do it. So two years later in 94, TAPS was launched to be that safe space for all those grieving the death of a military loved one, no matter how or where that death occurred, to come back together, to find healing, to find validation, to find com companionship, and to just know that, that you're not alone. We added into that the other gaps that existed between what the military does, which is a magnificent job of rendering final honors, providing that final resting place, and administering benefits to the eligible beneficiaries. So we added in 24-7 capability because go figure, grief is not nine to five. Grief is two o'clock in the morning or Sunday afternoon. So we are there around the clock to provide support and love and care. We added in casework assistance to extend beyond what the government provides for those eligible beneficiaries. So it includes parents and siblings, significant others, children born out of wedlock, anything we can do to help families get the support that they need. A lot of our financial assistance is made possible by companies like USAA and Prudential and others who recognize service and sacrifice and, and know that there are additional needs out there. We uh, then have the fourth core service, in addition to the peer-based emotional support, casework assistance, 24-7 helpline, and that's community-based care. You know, when you have a loss in the military, you then transition back to a civilian community. And we can help you find all the grief support services that are available already in that community. And we have a whole team that does the research to make sure that those supports are appropriate, that you know we're not sending a 22-year-old widow with a baby to a group that really is primarily elderly, uh, or that someone would be maybe shocked by a, the story of a suicide loss. So connecting families with all of the, the support that's already there for them. So they know that, you know, they're they're not alone. That's that's how TAPS came to be launched in 94. Today, uh, we are shoulder to shoulder with military casualty. Anytime someone dies, no matter where, no matter how, no matter why, no matter who that family of those who love that person are, we wrap our arms around them and are there for them. Last year in 2020, you know, a lot of people are thinking, oh, gosh, we're drawing down the troops, not as much need. But we had 7,583 new surviving loved ones come to us for care. So most we've ever had. It's extraordinary. It, it was um, really the, the year and that we saw the, the most growth. And this year, we're already on a trajectory to go over 9,000 new surviving military loved ones. We're seeing an increase in the loss due to illnesses connected with service and also suicides. 
connected with service. So great need out there. And thank you for asking the question. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I told, you know, I, I started to tell people in recording these episodes that I needed one of these. <laughs> this is the podcast is audio only. So people don't know what I just did, but I, I have to keep a box of tissues now with me when I start, when I record these episodes, because I have heard some, some just some great stories, um, great stories, unfortunate stories. Um, but the thing that is good is that at least the people are here to talk about it. Um, whatever that, that story is, you know, one thing that, that mutual connection, um, that we have, um, Allison, she, you know, she, to your point of, of, one of the things that you mentioned, Allison made the comment that when when walking into a a group of um, of military widows um, who have lost that loved one, it, it's a place. She said that it's a place that you can walk into and not have to explain yourself. And to me, that just says a lot about that program. To be able to walk into a group of people, um, whether it's just, I don't want to say just, I don't like that word just, um, whether it's a, 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 a group of gold star spouses or a group that have, that's met through taps, you can walk into those groups and just not have to explain yourself. And I think that's, that's definitely something that's needed. When there's some, you know, underlying things you just don't have to explain or talk about so you can get to the heart of the matter of whatever that hurt and that pain is. Y'all, no, no, TAPS, you do some things with, um, you know, is families. So not just the spouses, but also those kids. What are some things that you guys do with those kids um, that just lost a mom or dad? Oh, gosh, thanks. It is amazing. So we've had what we call the Good Grief Camp forever. It's, I think, 26 years now. We bring together children to understand a few really important things as they transition in their life from being a military dependent with their own little ID card in their picture over to being now a, a child of a, of a deceased service member. You know, the military is the only kind of loss that I know of uh, in society where we actually do give a brand new federal identification card with photo, you know, and change status upon something that's happened to another person. It's not something that happened, you know, to us, but something that, you know, the, the death of our loved one. And for kids, that can mean moving away from a military installation, losing their friends, losing their school, losing the little bedroom where dad hung a poster for them, you know, losing so much in their lives. And to bring them together and let them know they're not the only one to meet other kids their own age who are struggling with this, to, to get to know that in this transition, they're going from military dependent to now family who is the living legacy of American service and sacrifice. And they're a family that America honors and reveres and respects. And this is now their own right to let them know that they will never forget their loved one, whether it was a sibling, a parent, whoever that person was in their life, that it's okay to remember them, mm -hmm. to be curious about them, 
as they grow up to learn different things about them. You know, we've had kids that, that found out dad was a trumpet player. So they said, well, I'm going to try trumpet. Or, you know, dad loved to read. So, you know, they're like, well, let me explore that and, and see what it was, you know, why it was special to dad. Mm-hmm. We've had this program now for so long. We we have one uh, one boy that came to us in a stroller as an infant who is now in college and has transitioned out of the good grief camp and now is what we call a legacy mentor. And he's coming back now to mentor the younger kids. It really is a family now of kids across an entire generation who have grown up uh, in TAPS. So I mentioned the mentor program, the legacy mentors, but that's actually the mentor program for our military is one of our biggest programs. We have now nearly 20,000 military service members, veterans, uh, guard and reservists who we have trained to work one-on-one with a child. We do this at our Good Grief camps. We pair each child with a military volunteer who has been trained, who's been, you know, we do background checks, all of these things to keep it, keep it safe and keep it successful. And wow, is that amazing. We have, we have military members, you know, who would never come to a grief group for themselves, but wow, will be so proud to serve and support a child. And in doing that, find tremendous healing for themselves as well. So lots of good things for the kids, but it's so important that we help them get off on a healthy, healthy foundation. So, so with that, um, for people who will be listening to this episode, if they want to, um, if they want to volunteer in their area, what do they need to do to be able to volunteer? Oh, I love that. Thank you for that. We On our website is taps.org, and we've got a volunteer central uh, right there. You can sign up, and we have so many volunteer opportunities, no matter where you are. And we also have ways that you can participate in fundraisers. We've got a lot of great service members like Craig Wilhelm, who's a major uh, out of the Army West Point grad. When he was in Afghanistan, they, his unit lost a Chinook helicopter, Windy 25 was the call sign. So every year, Craig does a big run out in Nevada and recruits folks for that. So we have a lot of folks who have volunteered to do something in memory of those they have lost. We've got folks who, who do volunteer now to uh, be part of other special projects that we're doing around the country that are supportive of, the, of surviving families, participating in events, becoming military mentors. So lots and lots of ways to get involved and be part of this great program. Sign me up. All right. Here, 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 let's do it. <laughs> I did actually speak with somebody asking them questions about it. Um, about volunteering because it's just, you know, it, it, it really is, uh, oh my gosh. Yes. An emotional thing for sure. Oh my goodness. Like I'm just, I'm stuck. I'm speechless. And that doesn't happen too often. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, that, I, that's great. I, I mean, it really is. It really is. I love seeing when people can take um, take their junk and turn their junk into something um, that is not only has helped them, but has helped thousands of other people. I mean, it, 
do you ever do you ever even step back and think about that that because of your loss and your tragedy that you experienced um came taps and now the countless lives that have been changed because of you starting this program Oh, you know, it, it is such a blessing. We just had a big regional survivor seminar. It's our third one, kind of getting through this whole COVID experience and third one in person. So we did, we had a couple hundred family members together this past weekend in Denver, Colorado, all wearing masks, temperatures taken, you know, all of the things that we have to do, socially distance as best we could and, and just getting folks there in the same in the same hotel. So we could go to workshops, we could talk as a group, we could have meals together and to look out at those families and just see even in a few days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, to see the transformation taking place when they realize they're not alone. There are resources available. We can speak their loved one's name and remember the life lived because in society, people want us to just forget and move on. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work like that. You know, we only grieve because we love. And that love doesn't stop when a person physically dies. That love continues. And we've just got to have a place to put that. <clears throat> we wear photo buttons that, um, I'll see, this is, this is my photo button uh, with my husband. And we want to talk about it. We want to share pictures. We want to remember the fact that they lived and just... Oh, my heart is so full after the past couple of days being back with our families in person and seeing them. We've been doing a lot virtually, as in in everybody, and just how crazy is that? But it's not the same as being able to just look across a room, catch someone's eye, and know exactly what is in their heart Mm -hmm. and be able to mirror that back. And just even if you can't physically, you're just giving that hug and wrapping your arms around. Yeah, and and that's why when I record these episodes, I do it like that, do it like this, is that the the podcast is an audio only podcast, but but when recording it, it's so nice to be able to sit here and, and look at somebody face to face, even if it is virtually, to to have that conversation um with somebody. Um I think it's great. Um I think to to kind of leave to kind of close us out the question that I would ask you is um for any um for em- any spouse or child or parent of somebody who has lost uh, a family member due to during military service so for whatever like you have said for whatever reason or purpose what would you, and they're not connected to taps what would you what would you tell them what would you encourage them to do or not do oh Tiffany, i'm going to take it one step further and it's just if if you are grieving the loss of a loved one whose life in any way included military service your family is connected to the military in any way or or you are personally if you have that broken heart please know that taps is there Our website is taps.org, social media at taps.org, and our helpline is 800-959-TAPS. That's 800-959-8277. You are not alone. We have resources. We have support. We have a whole community of all of us who remember and honor those who have served. 
and those who have died. So thank you for having me on. This was amazing. Wow. Yeah. It, it was it was a lot of fun to, to walk that journey and share how this organization came to be and, and relive those wonderful memories. Uh, and it, I hope we can engage a whole lot of your listeners in supporting the families of America's fallen heroes. I I agree. I I, that, I do hope so. Um, yeah. Welcome. Thank you, and have a nice day.